Welcome to the New Mana Podcast, an Arch KCK production. Welcome back to New Mana, your newest favorite Catholic podcast on the Holy Eucharist. My name is Lee McMahon, your host, and I serve as consultant for evangelization at the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas. But don't be fooled. If you've got a pulse, this podcast is for you. If you are hungry for more, if you are fed up with the empty promises of the world, Jesus has more for you. We've been called to communion in Christ. We've been given the mission of bringing people to Jesus and bringing revival to the church. So our title, New Manna, comes from John 6:58. Jesus says, This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Come on, I don't know about you, but I want to live forever with the Lord Jesus. He is the new manna. He is the bread of life, and he gives himself totally to us in the Holy Eucharist. So got a really exciting episode for all of our listeners out there in listener land. Really excited. But first, I just want to say thanks to everybody out there who's left a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You're helping us get the word out that Jesus is alive, that he's about a good work, and that he is truly present body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Holy Eucharist. So thank you, thank you to everybody who has done that. And if you haven't done so, please do so. It'll take like 30 seconds or something like that. But today I am at Donnelly College. This is actually the second episode we've recorded here for New Mana. Um, but I'm joined by Monsignor Stuart Sweatland and Dr. Aaron Williams. Welcome, gentlemen. Great to be with you, Lee. Excited to be here. So for those who maybe don't know who you guys are, who are you, Monsignor, and what is Donnelly and like kind of what's your role here? Great. I'm the seventh president of Donnelly College. I've served here for almost uh, 10 years. Um, it's uh, exciting to be a president of a small Catholic college. Donnelly College was founded in 1949 by the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas. Then it was a diocese. Under which bishopric was it? Yeah, it's under Bishop Donnelly. That's how we got oh, the name. So okay. he, he served um, uh, only a little bit beyond our founding Gotcha. Uh, and is now uh, buried in the cathedral okay. uh, uh, here in Kansas City, Kansas. But he founded this, uh, co-founded it with the sisters from Mount St. Scholastica, the mm. Benedictine sisters from Mount St. Scholastica in Atchison, mm-hmm. Kansas. They also co-sponsor, uh, co-sponsor Benedictine mm-hmm. uh, College in Atchison. And it was founded first as a junior college uh, to serve, uh, at that time, those who might uh, be the first generation going to college. Mm. And we've kept that charism of serving those who might not otherwise be served as we uh, uh, offer associate degrees, like our founding as a junior college, but we've now branched out, so we have four-year degrees. Oh, that's great. And we have a nursing uh, nursing school that serves um, yeah. uh, nurses, so we do the CNA and the LPN and mm-hmm. the, uh, the ADN, the associate degree in nursing, which is the RN, and uh, we're continuing to grow that program. Man, I, as, as a KC local, this place has just sprouted, not just sprouted up, like, it, what am I trying to say? It's blossoming. I'm seeing Donnelly just blossom. Um, the brand new buildings, all the amazing infrastructure that you guys have been uh, bringing uh, just to the area. Like this, not just that, but the the quality of education. I'm, I'm finding more and more people uh, having gone to Donnelly. So yeah, yeah, thanks for all that you're doing with Donnelly. Well, thanks. It's, uh, we, you know, we stayed in the inner city of Kansas City, Kansas when a lot of things moved. And now as we see, you know, kind of a a rebirth of the inner city mm-hmm. here in Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, it's great to be part of that yeah. as we uh, serve the local community and beyond. Yeah, I was noticing that there was a bunch of teens walking mm-hmm. somewhere. Was that was it? Were they going to school or going to mass or what was going on? We're there? right next door to Ward High School, of course. Okay. So um, the um, you know they're, they're and they sometimes do their athletic activity. Okay, a bit. and even in the winter they'll get out there on the outside. Okay, but uh, uh, there's also. Um, uh, the Resurrection School, not we're just four blocks from the cathedral. People don't sometimes really? realize that. I, yeah, I had yeah. no idea. So we're you know, only four blocks from the, the Resurrection School next to the cathedral, which, okay. is, of course, serves K through 8. So okay. we have both right around us. And right up on the hill, a, a beautiful old uh, 1930s um, uh, kind of classic um, a, a building is that large public high school, okay. Wyandotte High School. So we're surrounded here by kind of educational institutions. Awesome, awesome. Dr. Aaron, who, or first of all, I want to say that your beard is immaculate. How, how do you do that? Well, uh, I keep the beard because as I begin to lose it on top, mm. I find that I need help, right. you know, there. And uh, it, it used to be uh, nice and full and, uh, um, you know, full of color. Mm-hmm. And, and since my first child, it's slowly, you know, become grayer <laughs> and grayer. Wiser. You're well, just growing in wisdom. Gray, gray is a color. The, true, true, true. Yeah, I'm just follically challenged, so it's... Um, 
yeah, grateful for any help that I could get. Uh, but doctor, tell me about you're you're a professor of theology here. Is that is that right? I for the uh, this is my fourth year okay. at Donnelly College. My first three years, I taught theology okay. here on campus to our students, which was an absolute joy. Mm. Uh, Donnelly students come from all over the world. They come from different religious backgrounds. Many of them do grow up Catholic, but maybe haven't received um, a, a deeper, broad formation in the sure. faith. And so this is, when they come to Donnelly, it may be the first theology class they've ever had in a formal mm. sense. So it was just an absolute joy to get to present the faith to them, yeah. to, to go back to the fundamentals and, and take them through really those fundamental human questions. Right. You know, does God exist? Who those am first I things. in relation to God? Yeah. That's right. That's right. So, so much of what we do is in what you might call fundamental theology. Um, thinking about those basic questions that all humans asked. Mm. And and that was an absolute joy that I got to do for three years, as well as campus ministry and the director of mission last year. Cool. This year, I'm working as part of a new endeavor that we're doing here at the college under the Blessed Xavier Silos Institute for okay. the Advancement of Catholic Education. And one of our initial uh, first initiatives with the Silos Institute is doing formation in our archdiocesan schools. So I spend my days now going into our archdiocesan schools and offering spiritual and intellectual formation to cool. faculty members there. Is that in partnership with School of Faith? Is this standalone? We, we've now be, uh, taken that program over and oh. doing it out of the college to keep it permanently part oh, of wow. the educational establishment. I believe strongly, we believe strongly here in Donnelly that everyone should be uh, involved in ongoing formation yeah. and education. Yeah. So one of the things we want to do is serve the local community and church by yeah. having those kind of formational programs. That's awesome. We're doing adult ed here. Um, just last night, I'm um, doing a Bible study on the book of Revelation right mm. now. So we had about 50, um, 60 people here doing that. And then, of course, we're in all 42 of the schools in the archdiocese. So you're forming, busy. Forming the teachers, forming the administration yeah. so that they can better form the students. That's really That's really wonderful. So how many, do you know how many countries students come from? Like how many total countries there are? Uh, I know that last semester we had 26 different uh, countries represented so cool. here at the college. I don't know the new number for the new semester we just started, sure. but, but that's a typical semester. That's really, really stinking cool. So you're doing the Seelis Institute kind of full-time right now. That's right. Not kind of very full-time right now. Um, so you're driving around a lot then, like throughout the Archdiocese? That's right. That's right. I probably spend uh, a day or two in Topeka, going down to Emporia, Garnett, Payola, there's all sorts of new cities I'm actually learning on in Kansas. Right. Uh, these are all, of course, schools. internationally known places. That's right. Seneca, yeah. Kansas. Um, and just but what I've loved is getting actually out into those rural, more maybe more rural areas or yeah. away from Kansas City and just seeing the vibrancy of these these schools. Yeah. And in the faithfulness of the faculty, the joy that they teach with. Right. And and uh, and some beautiful churches as well in these kind of rural yeah. areas. Um, I've just been blown away. And so I loved the opportunity to take the faculty into the churches, pray in the churches, read scripture in the churches, and yeah. uh, uh, you know sit with them and reflect upon God's word yeah. and how that shapes their vocation right. as teachers. Yeah, I remember the first time I went to, what is it? I think it's St. Mary's in St. Benedict, Kansas, or is it St. Benedict's in St. Mary's, Kansas? I don't know, but one, it's one or the other, but this church is insane. It's like, uh, it's a European cathedral just like plopped in the middle of a cornfield. It's, it's amazing. Like, you know, murals on the ceilings and statues nonstop everywhere. It's, if you're listening to this and you live in, you know, around the Northeast Kansas area, like you can make a, a pilgrimage out of it. And it says something about our heritage here, yeah. that the faith of the people who came here, uh, many of them farm, farming uh, families, right. who came here um, in the 19th and early 20th century, uh, the fact that they built their town, they built their community up around mm -hmm. beautiful, beautiful churches. Yeah. And they have preserved and handed those on uh, and maintained them. Yeah. Yeah, even as um, the, the economy around farming has changed, the sure. amount of people needed to, to farm uh, a certain amount of acreage is, is drastically reduced mm -hmm. because of modern technology, but those they have still kept their churches and yeah. their communities vibrant. Monsignor, what does a president of a college do, and what's your favorite part about being president of Donnelly? Well, of course, anyone would immediately joke that a president of the college is a professional beggar. I, um, there you go. I go around uh, asking people to support the mission of Donnelly College right. and the students at Donnelly College. Because we charge very little tuition, where our yeah. tuition is actually lower than the high school next door. It's under ten thousand a year wow. for you know full time students. So, 
Um, we have to more to make up that gap. So mm -hmm. I do need to ask people to support the mission. For so sure. a lot of a president's job is that external, if you will, public relations, which goes right. for everything from fundraising to doing what I'm doing right now, talking about the college. Sure. But internally, it's also managing the educational enterprise, mm. uh, which means making sure I, I sometimes use the, the metaphor that it, 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 I'm a professional beggar, but also a, a, and it's good on the Feast of St. John Bosco to talk right. about uh, juggling because yeah. I'm a professional juggler too. A lot of balls in the yep, air yep. to keep everything from the Silos Institute doing what it's doing to keeping our, our nurse, nursing school doing what it's doing, mm -hmm. keeping the buildings and the grounds and all the academic things we're doing. Um, you know, here in the main building. For sure. Yeah. So to just keep all of that going like yeah. any manager would. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you enjoy most about being president? It is a form of being a pastor as a priest. That's a little bit different when you have a priest president is I'm also, yeah. uh, you know, like a pastor. So, uh, you know, the scriptures say that someone who forgoes a family will be able to receive a hundredfold. And so, you yeah. know, I look upon the hundreds of students as my hundredfold family, along yeah. with the faculty and staff. And we have a tremendous faculty and staff right. who are really dedicated to the mission. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, feeling myself, I say I'm a father of a, of a large, yeah. large and poor family. Yeah, uh, but we're great. we're able to do some wonderful things. Yeah, I, I remember in the discernment process, like one of the things that was posed was like, you know, as men, we're all called to be fathers. It's the question of like, are you called to father many or few? Like which which what's the call on your life, and uh, yeah, you obviously being father of many through your priesthood, um, and you're a monsignor too, which is like what's a monsignor? Well, the old joke, of course, among priests is that what's the difference between father and monsignor? Well, there is no difference, but monsignor doesn't know that. <laughs> um, it's an honorary title; it makes you an honorary member of the papal household. I'm what they call a prelate of honor. So St. John Paul II in the Jubilee year mm. um, gave me this, this In 2000? Honor. Yes. Oh, yeah. wow. Gave me this uh, honor to, um, um, you know, be an honorary member of the papal household. Um, sometimes it means we can dress up a little bit fancier than we you might. get a different color maybe. Yes, uh, in our cassock and sure, things like sure. that. But it's an honorary title. And I, I looked at it at the time and still do that you're given that not because of what you've done, but who you serve. Mm. And I happen to be in positions in the church, which usually have a, a Monsignor. So there you uh, go. it's an honor to the communities I serve. Yeah. An honorary member of the papal household. You're like the Pope's nephew or something? Or? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, they, they started, they, as I understand the history, and I'm not an expert sure. on this. So um, for, forgive me if I get the history wrong, but... It was a way to to honor those who did work mm. for the curia, did work for the pope, and uh, you know extend some of the, um, if you will, the the papal ministry in some places outside of the Rome itself. You know, for went back in the day when that you makes sense. That. It was like yeah. a kind of a carrying card, yeah. like a, something like that. Yeah. So tell me about your lived relationship with the Lord. Like, how did you fall in love with Christ? Yeah, where were you at? What happened? Maybe you were raised just. Fill, fill us in, like, what's your story of falling in love with Christ? Well, you have, uh, probably this is somewhat unique, you have two converts here to Catholicism. Three in the house. Let's Three go. in the house, All okay. Right. I, was, um, I was brought up uh, in a Missouri Senate Lutheran community uh, and family. Actually, my, my dad was Methodist by background and my mom Lutheran by background. I was baptized Lutheran. And so I first came really to know Christ as a child, and, and I think it's so important that we don't underestimate the ability of children to come to know the Lord and yeah. live in relationship with the Lord. Not only because we're on the Feast of John Bosco, where we can talk about, yeah. let the children come unto me, but the Lord mm -hmm. himself said, let the little ones come. Yeah. So uh, I did have a real relationship and a powerful relationship as a child mm. with the Lord that I experienced in my uh, upbringing from very devout parents right. and, a, and a vibrant, small uh, church community. Unfortunately, given our society and given some of my own sinfulness and, and history, I lost that faith mm. in my teen years. And uh, uh, it had a lot to do with the turbulence that was going on in the country and in the world in the 70s when sure. I was a teenager. And so um, I um, did not, for all practical purpose, uh, function as a Christian. I didn't pray. I didn't do the things I should have done. A vague connection with God. I never lost faith that there was a God. Sure. But to make a long story short, it was uh, in my graduate education at Oxford that I came back to faith by the witness of fellow um, university students. You know, and I, I have to emphasize how important peer ministry is. Mm. You know, uh, the evangelization of like by like. Mm -hmm. You know, it's I believe it's pipe fitters who 
who convert pipe fitters or, yeah. or witnesses to pipe fitters, all under the grace of God, of course. It's teachers who convert teachers. It's it's um, yeah. um, you know businessmen who who convert businessmen. Right. So we need that peer. But I had the healthy witness of of believers who were contemporary with me when I was studying in Oxford, and so. When I was searching, and I really was, yeah. I was still searching for answers to the questions, the great questions mm-hmm. that we all face. I was able, by the grace of God and their witness, to be spurred back on to take seriously the claims of faith. Mm. Um, so that's you know that's the beginning of the story that I was yeah. it came. So I came to the Lord, and for me, it was the belief, the claim in the New Testament that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who all acclaimed as a great teacher and a healer. And, and a man that uh, attracted uh, people to himself and had these wonderful teachings. But the claim of scripture isn't all about that. That's there. The key claim is, did this man who was crucified and definitely died, the evidence is clear. Yep. The New Testament says he rose again from the dead in a way that no one had ever been Mm -hmm. brought back from the dead. And uh, that's the claim that really is the central claim to yeah. Christianity. And I examined that as someone who had lost faith. But the more I examined it, the more the evidence seemed to be overwhelming that uh, the men and women who experienced the resurrection of the Lord, mm-hmm. almost all of them went to their death confessing that belief. And for me, that was the challenge. Do I believe this to be true? And when I started to pray again, it became clear to me that this was true. Yeah. And what's interesting for me is, especially apropos to this discussion, is where those prayer experiences happened Mm. was in front of the Blessed Sacrament in the Catholic Church. And so we'll get to that, but I'll let Aaron uh, give you uh, his background. Can I I just ask a follow-up real quick? Sure. So you just casually mentioned that you went to Oxford, like Mm -hmm. it's not a big deal, like Oxford. When I was at Oxford doing grad school, what Mm -hmm. were you, okay, so what happened? Where'd you go to school for college and then... Well, I, I was uh, appointed to the Naval Academy at okay. Annapolis, so I was a midshipman, a naval officer, uh, and I studied physics at the Naval Academy. My mom was a math teacher. We sure. were kind of really into science okay. in, in my, and of course it was, you know, I, I was brought up in the- So the you're great, a scientist yes, by training. <laughs> by training, yeah. yes. And in the, uh, you know, it was a time when we were uh, you know, in competing with the Russians, sure, you know, yeah. and, and trying to go to the moon and all yeah, of that. Yeah. So it was a great time to be brought up if you're interested in math and science. Uh, so I was a physics major at the Naval Academy, um, and I was fortunate enough in my senior year uh, to get the Rhodes Scholarship. Oh, so wow. I got um, the opportunity yeah. to do liberal arts at Oxford, sort of rounding out my education. So, so fit, I spent yeah. three years at Oxford studying politics, philosophy, and economics. Wow, that's so cool. Well, thank you yeah. for your service, by the way. Thank you, thank you for keeping us all safe and whatnot, and uh, getting us to the moon. That's pretty cool. Well, I, get, I didn't have anything to do with that, know, but, know. you know, yeah. it's I, I got topped by some of the people who, who got us to the moon, That's so that nuts. was fun. Aaron, what about you? Yeah, I'm also also a convert, grew up in a Christian family as well, uh, very devout parents. It was uh, not in a Lutheran context, though. It was an evangelical, uh, non-denominational community that I grew up in, uh, of the charismatic strand. So mm. my parents had their first personal encounters with Jesus. They had grown up in what they would say nominal kind of Christian mm-hmm. homes, and then had a personal encounter with Jesus through the Jesus movement, the charismatic movement yeah. of the 60s and they 70s. They just made a movie about that, right? That's right. That's right about Lonnie Frisbee, who played a significant role in that movement in California. And uh, and so my parents experienced that at the University of Missouri, and they they stayed there after college, so helped found a church there in Columbia that's still there to this day, mm. um, Christian Fellowship Church, and that's where I grew up. My father was an elder there. And they handed on the faith to me, and it was central to our lives. It was the totality of our lives. Mm. Um, the, the, the church actually founded a school, and so my father was an elder at the church and principal of the school. So I was okay. there six, seven days a week growing up. Right. I was in that building, and it was the whole of my life. Um, and it was a wonderful, wonderful childhood. Uh, we actually lived close by so I could walk right. in um, almost like a little parish, if you will. Sure. Um, and uh, and, and my, my parents encouraged me to pray. They encouraged me to read the, the scriptures. And it was in, in the charismatic tradition, of course, it's, it's very much based on experience, you sure. know, personal encounter with Jesus. And so I would say it was there that I did um, cultivate and receive a, a personal relationship with Jesus mm-hmm. and encountered our Lord um, through Sunday worship through the reading of sacred scripture. As I grew older and began to ask more and more questions, I began to kind of seek 
um, really kind of more theological depth, you might say. Yeah, you wanted some you meat. Know. That's right. That's yeah. right. And that took me into into other traditions. Um, and I ended up at a seminary um, uh, in the Reformed tradition or Presbyterian tradition and, and studied there and um, w- received wonderful teaching in the, in the Bible uh, and you know, in reading ancient languages and, and so forth. But I also discovered there for the first time church history. Mm. I mean, you know, growing up in the charismatic movement, it's, it's almost as if there was the church of the book of Acts and then all of a sudden of the 1960s. Sure. And, you know, I, I couldn't tell you much of what happened in between. And, and so studying church history, all of a sudden I realized, wow, there's, there's so much here. Mm-hmm. There's all these, you know, crazy aunts and uncles in the faith that I didn't know right. I had. Right. And it opened up an entire family tree that I got to know and explore and gave me some roots. Um, but then, of course, the logical question is why stop in the 16th century? Mm-hmm. You know, um, why, why not the first 1500? Right. And so um, there, ironically enough, at the Reformed Seminary, I became an Anglican which is part of the Church of England, um, which was also part of the Reformation that broke away from the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, but they would view themselves as sort of one step closer to the Catholic Church, sort of a middle way, because they right. retained some of the liturgical practices. Right. They would still celebrate Holy Communion every Sunday. Um, it was a matter least, of authority, right? That's right, that's yeah. right. So they don't have a pope, they have a king. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so the head of the Church of England, still to this day, is, is, the, is the queen or the king right. now. Um, but uh, but there I was I, I experienced a, a liturgical environment. I ex- I, yeah, I experienced um, you know re- receiving Holy Communion as they per- as they as they practice it, uh, and that was a that was a wonderful uh, experience for me because part of what was happening in my own life was that I was beginning to ask questions that we're all asking now in terms of the nature of the human person. Um, the, the the goodness of of the body yeah. as we're all sort of separated from our bodies through technological devices and so forth and uh, and I was also doing pastoral ministry after seminary in the Anglican tradition and I had young people asking me uh, these very same questions yeah. and what I found was that the best answers to these questions were coming from people like John Paul II right. and I found myself one 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 afternoon at a half price books in Dallas Texas. And I wanted to take a study break, and so I wandered over to the religion section, as one does, sure. you know, with my interests. And I stumbled upon the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Forget which about I'd it. Never seen before. Mm. And I opened it up. I turned to the index, you know, going straight to the controversial things, yeah, yeah. and began to read about papal infallibility and things. And I was struck by how much I agreed with what they were saying. Yeah. And was completely surprised that I would. I thought I would immediately find all these errors mm-hmm. in it. And the uh, footnotes, yeah, are, the references to the church, to fathers the church fathers, oh, to sacred God. scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, they 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 show they, they do their work, right? The catechism yeah. does its work, and not and, and not just that, but then it connects one part of the catechism to the other, so you see how yeah. it's all connected as a whole. It's a web, you know, um, and and so that began to. Put, put me on a journey sure. towards towards the church, both sort of seeing the the unity, the the fullness of the faith, yeah. uh, how everything is connected, which we all intuitively know. We all intuitively know that everything mm-hmm. in our life has to be connected. Um, and uh, as well as these questions regarding the human person and um, what it means to be man, what it means to be woman, and so forth. And then so that that took me to study at the John Paul II Institute for okay. uh, studies on marriage and the family as a Protestant. I went mm, there, wow. did all my coursework there as a Protestant. And that's and, in Washington, D.C., That's right, right, in Washington, D.C., on the campus of Catholic University of America. And, and the faculty, uh, other students that were there were, were very generous, very kind and open uh, with me, invited me into, of course, all the conversations. And slowly but surely... I was just overwhelmed by the beauty, the truth mm-hmm. of of the Catholic faith, yeah. um, and uh, and was received into the Catholic Church um, just about about four years ago now. Hey, praise the Lord! Yeah. Praise the Lord! I, I it's that's a wonderful witness, Aaron, about how the Catechism is serving its purpose. Yeah, you know, it's not it's it's not the kind of book you sit down and can read cover to cover. Though some people do that, and that's sure. great. But uh, you know, when John Paul II published it, he said it's a sure norm of the faith. Mm. But uh, it also grounds us, yeah. um, and it's, it has done, I think, immeasurably good. But I, before the catechism existed, um, I was already in seminary by that stage. There was so much debate about 
what did the church really teach? Because mm. unfortunately, the 60s and 70s hit the church as well as the culture yeah, with some yeah. of the... the uh, cultural revolution, if you will. Right. Uh, I sometimes think of 60, 1968 as a revolutionary year. Mm. And uh, it led a lot of theologians, uh, especially in the European countries, uh, that you know crept over here eventually to write things, quite frankly, that were contrary to the faith. Mm. It's probably most remembered by people uh, on the sexual teachings. But it wasn't just the sexual teachings. It was, it was everything. And there was so much debate about what did the church really teach. Yeah. So the catechism really has done for us, taken the teaching that comes out of the Second Vatican Council mm -hmm. uh, and grounds it in a way that uh, gives access to here's yeah. what the church believes. Uh, and it's obviously done, uh, rooted in scripture and tradition, uh, which I think is an invaluable service. Yeah. And, and just as a reminder for everybody out there, the Second Vatican Council was the... Um, it's the second ecumenical council where the church called all bishops together uh, from 1962 to 65, just to kind of get everybody together and say, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we about? Not that anything changed about what we were about, but to clarify the call on the church's life in this moment and season in history. And yeah, things, yeah, I don't know. How, how would you explain, you know, the, what happened post-Vatican II? Uh, well, it was. I, I, I think if the council hadn't happened, the church would have been in a worse spot because sure. that cultural revolution really was powerful. Yeah. Um, and in, in the academic world that Aaron and I live, uh, we're still dealing with that. Sure. Um, and it, what's happened in academia is there was this uh, loss of confidence in the human person's ability to mm. know and believe truth. Matter of fact, they went so far to believe that maybe there is no truth. Mm. And what... Um, I call to sum up that idea of postmodern relativism sure. has uh, become dominant on many college campuses, sadly, right. even some of our Catholic colleges. Yeah. And the idea that there is no truth, is, it's actually a very scary idea. Yeah. Because if there is no truth, all that's left is power. Mm -hmm. You know, you have no way to adjudicate anything because yeah. there's no your truth and my truth. There's no mm -hmm. the truth. And therefore, all that's left is who's in charge it's and who can force. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but it's been, and it's actually a silly idea. You know, I always try to, when I teach this in class, I just write up on the board, there is no truth. Is that true? Of course, the very statement is a truth claim, so mm -hmm. it contradicts itself. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it puts it forward as a truth claim when it says there is no truth. So it's self-contradictory in that way. But we are dealing in our society, and in the, especially in the academy, with the, the fallout mm -hmm. from that loss of confidence in the truth. Yeah. Fortunately, at the same time, God raised up people like St. John Paul II. Yeah. Uh, to uh, ground the church again mm -hmm. in its confidence in the truth that comes from Jesus Christ. Yeah. I was reflecting on how, like, this might be a poor analogy, but I submit it to you nonetheless. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, the good doctor of the church, he, he put together this, um, what, it was him and his team of monks, uh, this thing called the Catina Aurea. I don't know how to say it because I'm not a, a Latin guy. However... Basically, it's just church father commentary on the Gospels. He just put this together, and this is in the 1200s, that he, that he compiles this resource, and um, it's just insane. Anyway, if you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. Catina Aurea, just best guess, St. Thomas Aquinas, you'll find it. It'll pop up somewhere. Anyway, but like the catechism is kind of like the new Katina Aurea for like the church to understand herself. Like I've, my, my binding on my catechism is falling off. I've had to duct tape it together because it's just falling apart, but how rich and clear it is about who we are, what the church teaches, what the church practices. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't know the intellectual history of the council in the 20th century, late 19th and throughout the 20th century, there were these great movements in the Catholic Church intellectually. Yeah. There was a liturgical movement. Mm. There was uh, what we, we call the John Paul II Institute resource model that was going mm -hmm. back to the original sources. Yep. Uh, there was a great deal of work done in France and Germany to translate those ancient teachings of the fathers mm -hmm. into contemporary languages to make them available right. for more. And, the, and part of the reasoning for this was, you know, the church has historically had some splits. Aaron was mentioning the, the splits that happened in the Reformation, but mm -hmm. you go all the way back to the 11th century yeah. and the split between East 10, and West. 1049. 1050, 1054. Got it. Yeah. So what the, what the um, scholars in the early 20th century right. 
partly, quite frankly, because of war. They got sort of thrown into their monasteries. Yeah. They couldn't go anywhere. So mm -hmm. they, they go back to the shelves and say, what do we have here? Yeah. And they start to say, well, let's translate this stuff. Let's right. read this stuff again with fresh eyes. But what happened is they were also trying to get to a time when the church was one mm. and say, maybe we can get back to unity if we came back to original sources and see where maybe things went wrong. Yeah. So this great intellectual tradition, and it was one of the strongest things, was a biblical movement as well mm. uh, that happened throughout this time. This, all that intellectual um, uh, growth, if you will, or, or discovery or rediscovery, that's what the council, the Second Vatican Council, tried to integrate mm -hmm. by updating the Catholic Church's teaching, not changing it, but saying we have to make it more intelligible and, and more in the language of today, yeah. and 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 grounded in this ancient yeah. uh, rich rich history we yeah. have. So um, you know that's and then catechism is a, is if you will a distillation right. of those teachings. Yeah, if you had uh, the two kind of breaths, uh, the inhale and the exhale of uh, Vatican II, if you had to sum it up, which is aggiornimento, which is the accompaniment, this, the coming alongside of and, and walking with um, fellow man today, and ressourcement, uh, as you said, like going back to the roots, going back to the to the beginnings. Yeah, to the sources. Yeah, yep. yeah. And, and those two um, breaths, or however you want to sure. uh, put it, uh, that played a part in my personal conversion, mm. actually, because as a, a Protestant, I was very concerned uh, about figuring out what the, on the one hand, what the Bible says, on the other, um, you know, what the those early church fathers said. You right. Know, um, you want to go back to the beginning to, to figure out what is what is true about yeah. Christianity. And as the resourcement movement was able to, to do that and articulate that for today and show how those uh, the church fathers were relevant for the questions that we ask right now in the 20th and now 21st mm. century, that was so significant for me in my journey. Yeah. And so I see that the fruit of the Second Vatican Council, something like the Catechism, yeah. the uh, Pontificate of John Paul II, yeah. you know, in his uh, articulation of what the the, the Council itself yeah. meant, was was significant for my own entrance into the Church as one right. that was looking for um, stability, mm. and at the same time something that would that would be relevant for what was going on and you know all around us. Yeah. Amen. So, Father, you're a grad student at Oxford, and you said we're going to come back, so we're coming back. What happened next? Well, um, because of the witness of my friends, I was arguing with them about all these things. Of course, that's what you do at Oxford. You sit around you do. at night, you know, perhaps with an adult beverage yeah. or two, and you argue <laughs> things out. And it's a great thing because you've got, you know, these wonderful minds all right. around you, uh, wonderful uh, human beings all around you. That, uh, and you try to get it to the truth of things, and that's, that's in itself an important uh, endeavor to believe there is truth and to try to pursue it, to seek it. Um, and um, I quietly, because my friends wouldn't have believed I was doing this, I was such a strong, uh, uh, so we say, said contra to sure. what they were trying to teach me about the faith. I was started to take instruction with a Catholic priest mm. to see what the Catholic Church taught. I, I wasn't sure where that was going to lead me, but I wanted to, to yeah. know what did the church really teach and why. And um, you know, he encouraged me not only to study and he gave me things to read, but he did encourage me to begin to pray. Mm. And it's sort of the, the, I didn't realize it at the time, it's right. sort of the Pascal wager, if you will, to, yeah. you know, try the faith on as if you believe and, you know, try it for a while. And, and by the time you get to the end of that trial, you'll probably be, right. uh, will have received the gift of faith. Well, of course, one of the places I went to pray frequently was the chapel at the Newman Center, the equivalent, the Newman Center. At, sure the uh, uh, Oxford. And um, of course, the Blessed Sacrament was there. And I kept having these early wonderful prayer experiences where, um, as I said to the priest, I said, it's as if, I've, if, 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 as if I opened my eyes, Christ would be right in front of me. Mm. And he took that opportunity when I talked about my prayer experiences in the chapel to teach me what the Catholic Church believed about mm. the Eucharist. And, you know, as he was doing it, we were sitting in the old palace where Actually, Monsignor Ronald Knox lived mm. when he was at Oxford, another great convert to the faith. I'm not great, but he was great. <laughs> um, the, um, um, as he explained to me what the Catholic Church taught about the Eucharist and that Christ was present in a special way, in a unique way, in a real way, yeah. in a physical way, in the tabernacle that I was praying in front of, 
I, I literally was feeling myself bouncing on the chair because I was wow. so excited. You're vibrating, this, yeah. This God, con natural experience of the presence of the Lord was now being explained conceptually mm -hmm. to me as the church is teaching. So for me, it wasn't that I had to come to believe it. I experienced it before I believed it. And, and, and now coming to believe it, I could experience it all the more. Yeah. So uh, it was um, uh, one of those huge signs along the way that made it easier for me to say yes to coming into the church. Wow. And you see that all over the Gospels too. Jesus re revealing himself through, through his presence and people encounter him and they're like, what? What just happened? Who is this man who speaks with such authority? Forgive sins. You kidding me? Rise, take up your mat. Oh my. You know, just. Mm. It, and, you know, mm. it, it all of a sudden opened up reading scripture differently too because now I could understand the woman who just wants to touch his tassel yeah. of his cloak. Now I could understand a Zac, um, you know, a Zacchaeus who, who, you know, will do anything he can, even mm -hmm. put up with abuse, to see the Lord, and then once he encounters him, to to want him to dwell with him, to come to his house, yeah. and totally transform his life from a life that had been caught up in sin and mm -hmm. exploitation to one who went beyond any norms of restitution to give back yeah. and to become, you know, a man of the covenant right. that he was called to be. So you uh, you have these conversations, and do you get confirmed in any? Like, do you have? Yeah, yeah. before I left Oxford, I um, uh, came into full communion with the church. Okay. So, having been baptized Lutheran, I was validly baptized. Mm -hmm. So, I received um, uh, for you know first Holy Communion was confirmed. You know, made my profession of faith was confirmed. Received sure. first Holy Communion, and before that, of course, did first reconciliation. Yeah, which uh, took all day. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to confess yeah. everything yeah. for my baptism. Um, and uh, I joke about that, but it did take a long time. But uh, I had set an appointment for the with the priest to do it on Good Friday before I was received on Holy Saturday. And um, you know, I started, and it just went too long. He had to say, "We have to go do the Good Friday service," right. which you know takes a long time. Yeah. So I started my confession, had a whole Good Friday service, and then finished it. So that's why I say my first wow. confession took all day. Yeah, that's um, that's funny. The first confession is a long one for sure. Yeah. Um, you're in good company. I think that's also true of John Henry Newman. I believe he began his his he 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 came to the the priest late at night, and the in the reign of the priest came to him, and he began his confession. And then they had the priest. I have to go to bed. So, so they went to <laughs> sleep and they great. came back. Yeah, the that's next great. morning and finished yeah. his confession. Yeah. So, what's your lived relationship look like with the Lord today? You know, Monsignor, you've got a you're kind of unique in that you're a priest and people you know priests say mass, um, but you know what what's the you know give us the picture like what your lived relationship with the Lord looks like today. Um, I'm paraphrasing here, but St. Augustine, oh, he would have said it this way uh, to his people. He, he would say, with you, I'm a Christian. For you, I'm a bishop. As a priest, I say, with you, I'm a Christian. For you, I'm a priest. And so um, I think that um, you know, duality, if you will, yeah. uh, is so beautifully present in the way the church instructs the priests to celebrate Mass. And when we are doing the most priestly thing we can do, acting in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, by offering the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, when uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit we uh, ask the Lord to bless the bread and wine and then say the words of institution that come right from you know, the Gospels right. and from St. Paul, and this is my body, this is my blood. The church asked us so that all can worship and adore and see for us to elevate mm -hmm. the host and for us to elevate the chalice. But immediately after we have elevated the host, elevated the chalice and done the most priestly thing we can do, the church then drives us to our knees mm. so that we too worship in adoration of the Lord present. Mm. So I have the, the good fortune, by the grace of God, every day to um, be able to worship Christ present yeah. on the altar before me and to offer him to the community in communion. Mm. And it, one of the, it is my most joyful thing every day is to offer communion right. as I'm able to say the body of Christ, uh, the blood of Christ to others and to allow them to share in that communion. Mm. Because that's the best way for me to describe my ongoing relationship with the Lord. It is a true communion yeah. with the Lord that I experience most profoundly mm. in those priestly moments. If I were to think about what does my relationship with Jesus look like today, I, I, I find myself recalling the word receptivity. Mm. 
you know, the, the um, French ressourcement theologian Louis Bouillet, he wrote a book on theological anthropology, that is, the human person in relation to God. And he took Mary as the, the sign of the fig, in the figure of what it means to be human. Now, of course, he would be in disagreement with the catechism and, you know, Second Vatican Council that says Jesus Christ reveals man to himself and makes his vocation and calling clear, of course. But the reason Bouillet took Mary was because she not only was human in terms of nature, her nature, which is true of Jesus Christ, he's 100% human nature, 100% divine nature. Yep. But she's also a human person. And so she is the sign of human, human personhood under grace. She reveals to us what it means to receive the grace of God. Yeah. And so this, this Marian receptivity, this yes to God. You know, in the creation account, you see this rhythm that takes place where God says, let there be, let there be, mm-hmm. let there be, and there was, and there was each day, right? And it's not until Mary that we hear creation's response. Mm. Let it be done unto me according to thy word. And I find those words of Mary sum up what I hope to be the first words of every day yeah. of my life. Let it be done unto me according to thy word. Lord, what do you have for me today mm. as your creature, as your son, yeah. as your disciple? Where do you want to lead me? Where do you want to take me? Wow, just the words. I don't know if something's being unveiled for me right now. The let there be and let it be. Let there be at X, Y, and Z. Let it be unto me. Mm. And it's it's precisely in that receptivity, that openness yeah. to what God might want to do in our lives that we then can become fruitful yeah. for him and can then share whatever it is he has with us, with others, yeah. right? It's it's only in the, the priority of receptivity right. that we can then act and do and give to others. I can't yeah. give what I don't have. Right. And the only way I can have anything is by opening myself up to God mm-hmm. each and every day. Yeah. And, and for me coming in, you know, Mary was one of the things I had to deal with, you know, sure. the teaching of Mary. And it was just this point that the Second Vatican Council and, and John Paul II emphasize uh, Mary as the first and best Christian, mm. the first and best follower of her son, yeah. and that she is the model of faithfulness for us. Now, it doesn't mean that all the things that make her unique, you know, the Immaculate Conception, the Assumption, all those things are not true. They're, of course, they're true. But to see her as uh, the the mother of all Christians and the uh, example for all mm-hmm. the Christians of reset, that was such a breakthrough for me that made it easier to accept all the doctrines right. of Mary as a, someone who had been brought up sort of with a, a, yeah. counter, a counter word on that yeah. in, in the Lutheran tradition. You think about how beautiful it must have been um, at that first Eucharist with the Lord, he, he, he says, take this, like, take this and eat. Like, this is my body. I was, well, nonetheless, just reflecting on how, how much joy the Lord must have had, like in a special and unique way. Um, just his, his human heart being filled with this supernatural joy of giving his, their, his very self unto his disciples. Like what he did first with and through Mary, he was then doing again. Man, what was it? What what was it like for Mary to receive the Eucharist for her first time? Like how nuts! Here we are again. This is, um, in a certain sense, kind of the fulfillment of what was, yeah, what began when I said yes. And, and Mary did receive the Eucharist from Christ mm-hmm. the first time she received it, mm-hmm. because Christ is the one who gives us the Eucharist every single time. The priest stands in persona Christi. He mediates the person of Christ to us, but ultimately it's Christ who gives mm-hmm. himself to us as both priest and the sacrificial victim. Yeah. So she does receive the Eucharist yes. from her son, mm-hmm. right? Mediated for the first time through the apostles, yeah. right? And how, how beautiful is that? You know, there's a, there's a, a wonderful painting of St. John, the evangelist, who of course was given to her as a son and she as a mother to him. And the painting is of him uh, giving her the wow. Eucharist and receiving it from him. I don't want to lose the thread that Aaron uh, eloquently put forward on receptivity mm. and Mary as a model of that. But for me, that is so important for us to live out 
for adult Christians, and yeah. I, as I mentioned earlier, I think for children too, we, we can encourage what the church um, refers to as mental prayer, as, mm-hmm. as the importance of meditation. Yeah. Because it's in our meditation every day uh, on, the, on, the, on the scriptures and on the, the teaching of Christ for us uh, to receive that word and to prepare us in heart and mind to be mm-hmm. able to receive him more worthily in the Eucharist. Yeah. I was telling a group, uh, my parish not um, too long ago, I'm pastor of Our Lady in St. Rose here okay. in Kansas City in Kansas, and on Sunday I was telling them about Mother Teresa's rule that uh, she requires her sisters uh, to do a holy hour every day as part of their rule. And they take one day a week when they set aside prayer and they do longer periods of prayer. And the reason she says that that is necessary for her sisters who do this demanding work of charity, of serving the poorest of the poor uh, and those who are sick and dying, is um, she says, we've got to see Christ present in the distressing disguise of the poor. Mm-hmm. She's, she was no fool. She understood that to see, you know, to see Christ present in the poor and sick and dying yeah. and suffering is a difficult task. They're in a distress, you know, Jesus is there, yeah. but in a distressing disguise. But she knew that unless her sisters encountered him daily in prayer, in Eucharistic adoration, and in the Mass, seeing Jesus there and experiencing Jesus there and receiving Jesus there made it possible for them to see Jesus in that distressing disguise of the poor. So that receptivity is lived out for us, yes, in our conversions, yes, Mm -hmm. in in our yes to God when we have that conversion or what father haggerty from saint patrick's in new york says that second conversion that we have to do that we go deeper as adults into our relationship with the lord but um you know that daily receptivity Mm -hmm. in 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 prayer and mental prayer in particular when we meditate on the lord that prepares us for the prayer of the church which is the eucharist yeah in in the eucharist we see the the poverty of god if we can put it that is uh, he comes down into you know the appearance of bread and wine, uh, the, the the incredible humility of God, who the creator of all things, sustains all things, yeah. um, who, who yes, in the incarnation becomes man. In the Eucharist, he takes on the appearance of bread and wine right. and, and gives himself to us. Yeah. And then we, we, re, we receive, in receiving the Eucharist, uh, we become what we eat. And yeah. then, so we then become Christ for others mm-hmm. and therefore also live life of humility and poverty yeah. for others pouring ourselves out and that humility and poverty is also you know we talk about god is infinitely powerful and he is all-knowing mm-hmm. um and the list goes on but in the incarnation when christ became you know human took on our human condition um god became infinitely vulnerable yeah and that, of course, vulnerability is fulfilled, you know, is seen, you know, in the cross, in the crucifixion, yes. in the passion. Uh, it's laid out for us. This is what, and, you know, that's what love does. Love has to be vulnerable. Yeah. You know, when you, you, you can protect yourself, but you can't love and protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Once you love, you're, you're, you're opening yourself up to be hurt. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so we see that, that, that willingness of God uh, not to, be, to become small, to become uh, poor to become humble and to become vulnerable, yeah. and that teaches us how we are to to love and be for others. To to subject ourselves unto the care of others, like to entrust ourselves unto others' care. It's yeah. I I, I just think about my wife and how um, you know she she's a physician, emergency room physician. So and I always say you know uh, ER docs. I feel like it's the most gospel. I, I'm not trying to make it a competition, but I, I'm kind of am. Like the ER docs, they they receive everybody. Insurance, great. No insurance, no problem. Like your legs falling off, we've got you. You know, you you have a headache, we've got you. You need a pregnancy test, we've got you. You know, anything, anything, no matter what it is, whatever walk of life, you have to be taken care of. Period. And it's just uh, it's so beautiful. But I was reflecting on just Mother Teresa and her her sisters. Um, you know, going into the slums and literally picking half-dead children out of gutters, to and and not seeing the lesions and like um, being repulsed by the, the the oozing or whatever, like just the sickness, the stench, but just seeing Christ and loving them, seeing Christ and loving them. And I, I 
uh, yeah, just I, if you're for some reason, Adele, if you're listening to this, I love you. I love you, and your ability to do this is just so amazing. And uh, yeah, we can only give that which we first receive from the Lord. That that pure, uh, unconditional um, love uh, of others. Yeah. And how the the sight of those sisters has been changed by their encounter with Jesus, like what they see in the people. Yeah and how they view them has been transformed. Mm. C.S. Lewis has this great line in his uh, book, The Magician's Nephew, mm. uh, where he's, he's talking about a character who is, is not a good character in, in the story. And he says of this character that what you, what you see and hear depends upon the kind of person that you are. Mm. That is that the three of us could see the same event, but we could interpret it in different ways based upon the yeah. kind of person that we are. Mm-hmm. And this is true, of course, for each of us. And if we are what we eat, that is, if, if we take in the Eucharist right. and we become Christ, then in receiving the Eucharist, we then will see the world as Christ sees yeah. it. We'll, that is, we'll see it truly yeah. and as it really is. How do you practice mental prayer well? Because I think sometimes like as as Christians, as Catholics, that we can just be like, mental prayer is kind of this whole, like, this thing I know I got to do. I'm like cleaning my desk kind of thing. But like, how do you do mental prayer in such a way that it, it begets ongoing transformation? For me, I, mental prayer often begins with a um, recollection of a phrase or word from sacred scripture or from a line from maybe one of the saints. And I just begin to recall it over and over again, mm-hmm. similar to Lectio Divina, you know, but, but not, maybe not with the, the Bible right in front of me, right. but, but in a similar way is um, returning to that word or phrase over yeah. and over and over again, letting it dwell deeper in me yeah. and then slowly moving from there to, to um, you know, um, you know, the different fra- phases, you know, of, right. of, of Lectio Divina. Um, but I find that really helpful, that kind of rep- repetition yeah. um, to, to calm my soul, my mind. I, my mind is so busy with all the, the cares of the world, yeah. everything I have to do throughout the day or maybe the things that I'm doing in that very moment. But to be able to step back uh, and, and do so through a word or a phrase, or at times it could be an image. Um, you know, these, this is why the gift of, of iconography mm-hmm. and sacred art is so helpful to, to meditate upon an image um, and place myself before it, right. or or in that in that story yeah. uh, of whatever it might be. Yeah, the repetition and using your natural faculties, like your imagination, uh, putting yourself somewhere in scripture. Amen. Yeah. And I, that's a, um, for me, it's maybe an occupational hazard, but it's, it, it's a good one. Um, with the privilege I have to celebrate mass each day, mm-hmm. I also have the privilege of preaching almost every day. Mm-hmm. And so I take the readings of the day almost always as my starting point mm-hmm. for my own med- meditation. Usually the gospels, the more, more what I focus on, right. to be honest with you. Uh, so I recommend that for people to start there, just, yeah. you know, to, to meditatively read the gospel for the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, or to pick one gospel and just you know slowly go through it, uh, yeah. reading what you know scholars would call a pericope a little bit, mm-hmm. and just read that and and you know just what you said about ima- imagining yourself there is a fruitful way of doing mental prayer. You right. know, to read it through once so you know what it says, to read it through the second time just looking for perhaps details you may have missed, but right. go back that third time and and read it meditatively, trying to bring it to life in your mind's eye, yeah. and allow the Lord to place you in 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 the scene, if yeah. you will. Uh, so today we, you know, the gospels from Mark six, beginning of Mark six, where Jesus uh, runs into opposition in his own, in his own, yeah. you know, own place, and um, you know, famously he says, "A prophet is not, is not without honor except in his native place, among his own kin, in his own house." Mm-hmm. Um, and but it went on the passage to say, so he was not able to perform any mighty deeds there apart from curing a few, a few sick people, people yeah. right, and lay, <laughs> by uh, by laying hands on them, yeah. and. Um, it hit me that despite all the resistance, and right now we got to be honest in our nation and our land, even though uh, many many of our uh, ancestors were devout believers, there's a resistance to the gospel. Yeah, maybe there always was, and that isn't recorded well in history. But uh, there is a particular resistance to the truth of the gospel yeah. right now. But even despite the resistance that Jesus had, he still did miracles yeah. in their midst. And that's what we have to have faith in, that despite right. all the resistance around us, God can still and will yeah. do miracles. At least that's how my meditation took yeah. me. It took me to that place where 
Uh, and that's what I find each day through the power of the Holy Spirit. God takes us where he needs us to be yeah. as we meditate on his word. I, the Chosen, the Chosen series, mm. is it, it, it's this, right. but pa- like us participating in it passively. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, mental prayer is us just like with the Lord, this this co-op effort of, um, it's, it's effort and grace mixing at the same time. And, and going to these places, like, what was it like for Jesus to be brought to the brow of the hill for the people to throw him off headlong? What? How did he get out of there? Yeah, and and that's an important thing of like the gift of the chosen as a you know television series, a movie sure, series, sure. Uh, and spiritual reading and everything. It's all grist for the mill. Yeah, but it's all there to help us uh, live out our relationship with the Lord. Yeah. Uh, because it's an intimate, it's a passion, it's a personal relationship. Yeah. The Lord relates to me differently than he does Aaron um, because we're different people mm-hmm. and have different vocations. We we overlap in some ways, yeah. but he's going to deal with each of us individually yeah. while calling us all to live in a communion. And that's the thing, we need each other. Mm-hmm. We need all these vocations. We need emergency room doctors. We yeah. need people doing radio and podcasts. We mm-hmm. need people teaching teachers. We need people... Um, least important running colleges so uh you know we need that and um you know christ will come to each person yeah um in a unique and wonderful way yeah he desires each of us and there, there's no there's no part of your life that's too small for him to care about aaron what are you what's your prayer life on a daily basis kind of look like as a as a family man i imagine you've got family i do have a family four kids nice uh ages eight and under Mm. Uh, so a busy, full, full life. Yeah. And we've, we've just recently actually uh, uh, foolishly and joyfully uh, taken on a puppy. And so that's added a whole nother. Like a real puppy uh, or like a dog? Uh, uh, a puppy as in like... A puppy a, dog, yes. A, a like three-month-old dog? Like a 10-week-old dog. Ooh, so very, you've very bitten little. off. Yes. Yes. Um, but, but that has wonderfully uh, made me more, even more consistent in waking up at 5 a.m. Yeah. You know, every morning to make sure the dog gets out. But then make the coffee and sit down uh, with sacred scripture. Again, the readings of the day and, and read and go through those mm. and take time uh, to, to prayerfully enter into God's, God's yeah. word. Um, the temptation for, for me, uh, because my, my job it has, pertains to teaching the Bible, right. is to treat the Bible as an end in and of itself, mm-hmm. you know, to, to study it, to, to you know, think of the, look at the original languages, different connections you see, um, and to turn it to, some, to simply an academic sure. reading. And um, I can find myself doing that even in the mornings when yeah. I'm trying to pray. Yeah. Uh, but of course, God has given us his, his word, um, and St. John speaks of this, that we're supposed to eat this book. You know, they were supposed to take it into ourselves because the goal is is ultimately an encounter with God Himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, my my daily time of prayer uh, begins with with sacred scripture, yeah, in in the readings of the day and prayerfully taking those in. At the same time, I when I when I have time, I enjoy reading scripture in big chunks, yeah, because it, it's one thing to to take a verse or a phrase, but it's something else to see the panoramic story of God. Mm-hmm. And what he's given us in his word, and in those little bits become that much richer yeah. if you understand how they're the flavor that they have based within the, the entire context yeah. of God's story, and then how we fit into that story as well, right? It's not just little propositional truths that he's that he's given us through yeah. Scripture, but it's a it's a story that he wants us to participate in, and he's calling us to mm-hmm. enter into. As you were talking, I was reflecting on how I mean, because I I do uh, pretty much the same same thing, like I. First thing in the morning, um, you know, it's it's I'm, I'm working chronologically through the Gospels, just a little bit by bit. Whenever you know, whatever I've got for that day, it's just um, like right now. I I just finished Luke seven, you know, this morning. Just finished Luke seven and halfway through Luke eight, and it's just like I stop where the Lord tells me to stop. Like if something hits me, I just stop and I just sit with that and let it ride. You know, commune with the Lord in that moment. And the more that we do this, the more that we um, read the Bible, not just as an end in and of itself um, for as a, as a point of study, but so that like to deepen our relationship with the Lord through time spent and, and memories made, um, that it becomes who we are. Like it's rewriting our DNA. It's, re- it's, uh, it's like recreating our brain almost. It's, it's this like I'm a new creation in Christ. Like the old man is dead; he's gone. I am new in Christ Jesus. To use Saint Paul's words. Um, but yeah, the more that we do that, 
it just begets this this deeper intimacy and uh, yeah it, it changes our lens through which we see the world yeah. one of the gifts that we're given in ordination is the call to pray for the church and with the church the office mm-hmm. of the church the liturgy of the hours so um similarly to wanting to do the mental prayer that aaron describes and i try to do that each morning with my office mm-hmm. so for me, for myself it's you know starting with the you know the invitatory and the the uh office of readings sure. into the morning prayer uh so what's beautiful is i'm praying a, a lot like jesus prayed in the yeah. sense we're praying the psalms lots of psalms and uh that connection to praying as our jewish brothers and sisters mm-hmm. we're saying paul john paul ii called our older brothers and sisters in right. faith uh, we really are praying like Jesus prayed and praying the office. So that's one way that, you know, of course, the church says lay people are invited to pray the office mm-hmm. as well. And I know a lot of people who have gotten great fruit out of starting to do morning prayer and evening prayer right. uh, along with the, the church. Yeah. And I think Bishop Barron, he just came out with a great resource uh, to, to just make the um, the liturgy of the hours more uh, approachable. Maybe because like if you if you know what I'm talking about the books there's is it four of them there's, four four volumes yeah there's like a million ribbons and yeah. it can be overwhelming yeah. but um, yeah this new resource and also I Breviary there's an app that you can get on your phone to pray the liturgy of the hours and um, you can even set reminders for yourself when you know the proper time of the day happens and yeah. so yeah very yeah and apropos to our theme the, the way the church sees the liturgy of the hours it takes the grace and the fruit of the holy sacrifice of the mass and stretches it out throughout the day mm-hmm. so it really is each day is supposed to you know flow from and to the holy eucharist yeah a good friend of mine i think it was or no it was father colm larkin he said that uh, as priest i don't make a vow i don't promise the bishop in our case the archbishop to uh, pray the mass every day i don't i don't I don't promise that. I promise to to pray the breviary, mm-hmm. to to pray the liturgy, of the hours every day. I just thought that was really interesting. No, I, well, for me, it's one, it's also sustaining and knowing that all the religious in the world, yeah. So all the brothers and sisters, you know, are praying the same office, uh, and to know people in in many different languages and throughout the world right. are offering up these prayers, and they're mm-hmm. they're that I'm included in the people they're praying for because yeah. often it's praying for priests. Mm. So there is that sense of knowing that you're part of the body of Christ and the yeah. body of Christ is interceding for each other. Mm. Maybe in to, to wrap our time up to today, uh, I would love to know what, what advice would you give to anybody out there who might be on the fence with respect to the Eucharist? Maybe they're having a hard time wrapping their head around it or maybe they're, uh, they just haven't had that encounter that you both have, have spoken to. What, what advice would you share? For me, the first time I received the Eucharist, I was in St. Thomas More's, Saint, the chapel of St. Thomas More an Oxford man. The actual St. Thomas More. Yeah, well, he went to Oxford, so right. the, the wow. chapel was named after, you know, famous yeah. alum, if you will. Yeah. And um, um, I, uh, it, was a, it was a small crowd because it was Easter time and everybody was on vacation mm-hmm. away from the university. So it was maybe 100, 125. Um, and I remember it so well because uh, there was a Korean family uh, that was baptized that day, mm. and they received communion first. So I was the fifth person in line to receive communion. And as I waited for the um, the priest to bring us the host and the cup, um, I uh, had a moment to pray. And I realized at that moment that I was doing exactly what God wanted me to do, and that I was uh, that He was coming to give Himself to me mm. and unite Himself with me, mm. um, and so that, um, you know, in a, in a way, was a fulfillment of the prayer we prayer we pray all the time: the Our Father, Thy kingdom come, Thy will mm-hmm. be done. I was doing the will of God because mm-hmm. I was there, present, receiving Him, and that's yeah. what he, Christ wants to do. It says in Revelation: "Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and mm-hmm. knock. If you open the door, I will come and sup with you, dine yeah. with you." Yeah. And this is what the Lord was doing. So, if you're on the fence, allow yourself that experience of realizing that Lord wants to come and dine mm-hmm. with you and sup with you and be with you and dwell with you and become one with you. It is it is nuptial. You know, the scriptures yeah. are very clear on this. Christ is the bridegroom. His church is the bride. He loves us with his spousal love. Mm. So if we're open to receive that, um, it is, and it was, the most joyful moment of my life was that. I love being a priest. I loved getting ordained, but it does not eclipse my experience of first mm-hmm. being able to receive the Lord present in the Eucharist. Wow. You know, the, the human person is hungry. We're a hungry being. And and this is true bodily. We need food to live. Uh, even Jesus, 
needed food to live. Yes, he fasted 40 days, but then St. Luke says in one of the most under, you know, understated uh, lines in his gospel, uh, he came out from his 40-day 40 40 fast and he was hungry. Right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we have to eat to live. But we're not only bodies. We're, we're not simply brains on a stick. God has made us uh, with a body and a soul. And our souls are also hungry. Um, of course, uh, at the deepest level, that which what, what we hunger for is we hunger for God. He's made us with a desire for Him. And in Holy Communion, He comes and He feeds our souls with Himself. He gives us His very self. That which we long for most of all is Him and communion with Him. Mm-hmm. And He gives, this, gives it to us in Holy Communion. And this, this, this hunger is undeniable, and we can look around us, we can look at our own lives and see how we chase after um, you know, food of all sorts mm. and how often we find the food that we eat to not be satisfying to our souls, uh, but rather make us sick. Mm. And, uh, and the Lord knows what's best for us and what that which we most long for, and, and it's his, his, very, his very self. And so um, for those that are, that are on the fence about the significance of the Eucharist, I think uh, reflecting on the, the deepest hunger of our souls is, is worthwhile and how Christ meets that with his very self and the gift of himself. Just ask, just ask the Lord to reveal himself to you in this way, and he will because he's faithful. He, he promised to come and he does. Um, but gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for being here. Thank you for letting me come into your house to uh, to record this episode with you. It's been great uh, to converse with you both. It's a pleasure. And it's an honor and a blessing to all who are listening. Monsignor, would you be so kind as to, to round us out with a blessing? Most certainly. The Lord be with you. And with your, with spirit. your spirit. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord look upon you with his kindness and grant you his salvation. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining. This has been New Mana. We'll see you next week. God bless you.